Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast, presented exclusively on the Chop Sports channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We're recording this on Monday, January 16th. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, we'll discuss all the red teams painting their towns red and the reds being killed by blue striped seagulls and where the sword of Dicecles may swing next. But first, I'm sure someone is asking, who the hell am I? So uh, for the folks that are new to the premier streaming network, or new to this channel, who am I? I'm Laurent Cortines. I'm a massive football fan, and I came to football from a love of music. I was a big Manchester City fan, a Manchester music fan, Smiths, Morrissey, whatever. I'm of that age and followed along from there. My football growth was more on culture and fan culture. I read a book, uh, famously Among the Thugs by Bill Buford. It talked about hooligan culture. I had gone to London and the mid-90s, and fell in love with football since, my claim to fame being I was in London during Euro 96, and a goal was scored by Aaron Shearer, and I turned everything off, and I could just hear the crowd outside the council estate where I lived. So very, very big deal for me. Um, And I came to football really in-depth in 2010, um, more with everyone else, and I fell into City because of Oasis and because Johnny Moore was a, had a trial with the Smiths. So I was always into the culture, but didn't really have access to the game. Always a big sports fan. And um, the catalyst for it was I was working at Tops, the old baseball card company, and we had an app and I was the producer and product manager for Tops Kick. And I watched every game to make that app run and learned everything I could. And now I have not missed a, a a city game since then i watch every game so you don't have to i listen to every podcast so you don't have to and i translate every narrative so you don't have to for english fans if you're in the uk i know we have some on fan hub and other things that i'm networked to i try and translate american things and bring an american perspective to english football so very often we bring up cultural things like you know why why todd Bowley is doing the things he's doing with eight-year contracts and why some of these things, these American owners are trying to do things. Why are they in support of the Super League? And all these kind of things that are American sport culture things that get into English football and then the other way around. And for American friends, the thing I try and do most is try and bring a little bit of football history. I really dove into it a lot. Uh, I've gotten feedback from people who are like, hey, I didn't know why the 3 p.m. kickoffs were. And I try and learn a little bit about every club and try and teach people in the UK about their teams and about what all this means and why we love it so much and why it's so integral to people's lives around the world. So before we get into the London Derby, I thought I'd do that. But now is the time. We're going to get right into the North London Derby. Now, what is it? Why is it a big deal? Let's do some of my little history right here. So uh, Arsenal and Tottenham. Both big teams, early teams in London. The history of football is very much in the north first, starting mostly in Sheffield among the working class people. But but there is football going on in London at the turn of the century. And Arsenal are named for the Woolwich Arsenal in the southern part of London, south of the Thames. And they're there, and their history starts there. And that's fine. And Spurs are in the north, north of London near Camden, maybe even farther north. I, I don't have my geography. The beef with these two teams comes because Woolwich Arsenal moves to North London, nearby Spurs. Okay? And not only that, they start winning earlier. And they have a very brilliant uh, coach in Herbert Chapman, who in the 30s revolutionizes football with the VM. And he actually gets the tube stop near Arsenal to be called... Arsenal. So you take the train and it says Arsenal. So you have this giant advertising. So, and that's where the story goes. And then it's just proximity and years and years of fans. But the original sort of source of it, the Beverly Hillbillies, the uh, Hatfield and McCoys of it starts because Arsenal is in South London and they move to North London. And hence the uh, oldest rivalry in sports and one of the strongest rivalries in sports comes up. So, but 
let us get into the North London Derby. I'm not going to go through the scores because I'm going to do every single game in the league this week. So 10 games, we'll go through all of them. Uh, first one, Spurs-Arsenal. We know that Arsenal are great. They We've been talking about them, and I talked about it two weeks ago on the show if you're new, I, there's a backlog on the, on the internet everywhere. You can go subscribe to the podcast and find any episode you want to hear. Um, and they are on pace for 97 points. This Arsenal team is really good and really grooved. That being said, it is a derby. And derbies are times when if a team has an edge in its talent, is in its coaching in its moments, the rivalry comes in and all that goes out the window. And so when Spurs plays Arsenal, you expect it to be a fight, a battle, and a war, especially for Spurs at home. They had been undefeated over the last five years at least. Uh, I don't go back that far, <laughs> much further than that, uh, until the last time Arsenal won at the new White Hart Lane. And first 20 minutes, first half hour, first half, Spurs do what they do, and they are awful. They get it all wrong, or the fans get it all wrong. So um, Conte plays Cessignon, who's a young fullback, attacking fullback. But I think his rationale was to combat the ever-present and amazing Bakario Sako, he'd put Ryan Sessing on him and meet athleticism with athleticism. But that didn't work because it's not just about athleticism. That would mean that you could just run up and down, and you can't. Um, Sessignon is poor at positioning and gets behind Saka, and Saka, it, for the first goal, gets behind Sessignon. Sessignon doesn't close him down, lets Saka get really close into the 18-yard box, and Saka fires a ball at the near post. It slightly deflects off Cessignon, who does attempt to block it. And to be fair, Luis commits a howler, which he's prone to do every once in a while. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, Mike Salerno, my partner in crime. Um, he just does a bad job. He doesn't have his hand on the post to measure where he is. He's too low. And when the shot comes in, he parries it into his own goal. So right there, we're 15 minutes in. Arsenal had been bossing it already, um, and at that point, they're down a goal after 15 minutes. And to be fair, Spurs are not in this game for those minutes. It's really poor. It doesn't look good at all. Um, there's another moment where um, there's another moment earlier on before the goal where Enketia gets a chance. There's a there's a cross that Enketia heads that Lloris saves. Then you know, we get the bad potty positioning from uh, from there. Spurs does create a chance with Son, and Ramsdale makes an early save. We'll come to that later. But then, you know, the ball is just in Arsenal's hands, and you're not seeing the fight, determination, and passion that you would expect from a derby. From a derby. This should not be this way. It's flat, basically. And Arsenal are bossing this game, and I think ultimately... Conte could see his team wasn't there. I think the fans could see they weren't there. And I just don't understand how they don't find the gear to fight for the badge. These are these moments. And one of the things you'll see is you'll see the players touching their badge and kissing their ass. These are the moments. I talked about moments last week. Derbies are where heroes are created. Derbies are what make a season. It's the same when I get, I told, like I explained earlier, this is Michigan, Ohio State. If, if Ohio State's down that year and they beat Michigan, it makes their season, right? It's rivalry week times 200 years. So um, we see, you know, Sun gets a chance early. Larissa's is under pressure. Arketia gets a goal. Then the soccer goal. And it's still not good. Partey almost scores a goal on a on where where. where Spurs has really pushed back into, and they've been doing this lately, where the midfielders were coming to the top of the box, and Thomas Partey unleashes a thunderbolt of death and destruction 
that slams off the post so hard that I thought that the post was going to come off. Uh, so you could feel it. And Spurs at that point were like, we are doomed. <laughs> um, and then the same type of action happens again a few minutes later. And Odegaard, who's been the player of the season for me for Spurs. I mean, I absolutely adore Martin Odegaard. He's this... He's a young player who, at 15, was set to be the next Messi. And, of course, like most players, it took him 10 years to actually become the player he was supposed to be. And then he scores one from outside the box that Lloris, he dove and he kind of missed it. And it's not great. It's not great from Spurs. And it really stays that way for most of the first half. And uh, going into the break, you know, you'd... You could say that, you know, Arsenal Arsenal deserved their lead. Spurs were lucky to have as much as they had in the game. And then second half, you know, um, second half, you would expect what happens with Spurs this season. They come out and they just play much better. And I think Arsenal ultimately control this game and do let Spurs have the ball and possession and attack. And they just kind of soak it up. Granted, there were chances. And um, Aaron Ramsdale in the second half really snuffed out any opportunities. To be fair, right? Like, in the first half, Spurs had four shots, two saved. Um, So, but in the second half... Five saves were made, especially early in the second half. Kane has two. Sessegnon gets saved. That's the best one of them. Um, Kane's is less so. And then there's a bunch of pretty poor ones, but Richarlson does have a decent one late in the game. But I think that early um, barrage in the mid-50s of the game that that Sessegnon almost scored was really the moment that historically Spurs would have gotten a goal the whole thing would have changed, and it essentially kicks off after that. Um, although Inketia did have one chance in the 70th minute that he really should have scored uh, and missed. So um, Arsenal really could have been out of sight. But ultimately, Arsenal was in control of this game, and you really had the feeling that even if Spurs had scored a goal, they wouldn't have gone on to kick on. Um, it's really something sad to see i have to admit that you know and then they sort of see it out there is a bit of a fisticuff at the end richarlison comes on second half the troops come in you know a bunch in the 70th mark richarlison um basuma perisic all come on in between the 70th and the 76th minute and they change things and those those attacking players um do provide something but like i said spurs were in control and in that 50th barrage uh, Ramsdale really sort of shut down and snuffed out any of the comeback that Spurs are known for. So Spurs did show fight in the second half. But what is so upsetting and so troublesome, I'd say, for Spurs is the Conte thing is just not working. Uh, I think I've talked about it before, but it doesn't matter. So Antonio Conte is, you know, is a manager who's known for winning. He is very much a Jose Mourinho type defense first, uh, fitness first, battling type first. But I think that those types of managers, even though he did win um, City A with Inter two years ago, he did win with Chelsea in 2016, and his teams generally are attacking teams, but they attack via wingbacks, and they get their width. And they, and they do attack with defensive strength. So they're much more defensively solid and let everything sort of happen via these wide players who run up and down. And Spurs have neither of those things. They neither have a strong defense or a good goalkeeper or wingbacks who can provide the things that Conte wants. So you'll hear Conte complaining, complaining, complaining. He doesn't seem to see what he has. He simply complains about what he doesn't. I think a good coach should be able to see what's in Spurs team in their squad and craft a better team out of it. I refuse to believe that this team is bad. 
this team is not bad. Okay. Um, if we look at, if we think about some of the other managers in the world, they take teams and change them to what they need them to be to, in order to win. And I don't think Conte is capable of that right now. And I am concerned for him and for Spurs if what he needs is what is is what is desired and not someone who can see what's here it's really much really a team spurs i think that is being looked at for what it's not versus what it is it's a sort of negative viewpoint of just like oh they're just him and son and kane and everyone else's crap that's bullshit there's really fucking good players on this team eve basuma i have seen play in brighton and he's an incredible player um Ivan Perisic has been an incredible player multiple times. Kulishevsky is an incredible player. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen some of their defenders, and I'm just picking up, pulling up the names really quickly. Eric Dyer is not a defender. Lonley, we know, can play the ball. Uh, Christian Romero is a, play, a ball player. But but something is not working with this squad. Matt Doherty, who was great in Wolves, is now, you know, being treated as though he's a piece of shit. I do want to continue to give some credit to Arsenal. Just wax poetic about Spurs. I want to give something to Arteta. He's really grooved this team. Um, I think it's a testament to both Arsenal and to Arteta that he's now has an opportunity to knock on the door and become one of these, one of the coaches, one of the guys. Um, we seem to have been locked in a little bit of a circle of Ancelotti, Pep, Klopp, Conte, um, Allegri, uh, Emery, uh, Benitez to a lesser extent. But this sort of retread of the same five to ten coaches uh, that are, for, for lack of a better word, coaches who can win you things. And I'd like there to be another coach out there who can win you things. Right, let's get another guy holding a trophy. Uh, I know Arteta picked up the FA Cup. Uh, I know you know Brendan Rodgers picked up an FA Cup. But let's get there to be another coach who, when the Barca job comes up, maybe Arteta's name comes up because now he's he's the champion of England, and he's t- he's a young manager. I don't think he's forty yet. He may be just forty, if not less, and he really has this team grooved. You know how they're gonna play. Arsenal roll the same guys out. They took a hit with Jesus. They put it in Ketia. They're still the youngest team in the Premier League, and he has to give a lot of credit. And it seems as much as, as much as you know, the Arsenal fans were lament, were killing Kroenke, uh, you know, silent stand during late Wenger and early and Emery years. That's all gone. All that is gone. Arteta won the internal power struggle, got rid of Sven Mitzenlat and a bunch of other guys, and he and Edu have got on the same page and have turned Arsenal around. This Arsenal is the real Arsenal. This Arsenal is now Premier League favorites. I've been saying it for weeks. They are. They're on a 97-point pace. I don't think they're going to get 97 points, but they have an eight-point lead on City. They can lose both games to City and still have a two-point lead. That is massive for them, and they have the look of a champion. They went to Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and dominated Spurs. Yes, the second half showed fight, but you never felt like Spurs were Arsenal were going to lose this game. Ramsdale shut it down, and they move on. There is a couple of narratives out of this game that I think are interesting and worth discussing. And it's, if you had swapped goalkeepers, would the result be swapped? Because Loris is done. I know Mike likes to defend him because he defends every player on his team, but he's cooked. And Ramsdale's just a commanding English guy. Um, if, you're not new to the, if you're new to this pod, you know that I have this thing that I believe Premier League teams need and it is Englishness. It doesn't have to come from an English player, but there is an ethos, a mythology, a type, a feeling of something 
that is that connects the way a team plays to where the team connects the way a team plays to where the team plays. So in England, you must show English football fans that you are English and you understand blood and thunder, that you understand muddy pitches, that you understand getting stuck in, that you understand slide tackles, that you understand playing for the shirt and giving effort is more important sometimes than winning. And for Spurs, for Arsenal, there are several players that bring that for them. One is Ramsdale. He actually is English, but it's weird for a keeper to have that kind of personality. He brings Englishness, and um, Alexander Sinchenko brings Englishness as a Ukrainian. So like I said, he's been playing in England for seven years, but he brings fight, determination, trouble. Granite Xhaka brings that kind of fight, determination, struggle that you, if I'm going to lose, I'm taking an ounce of blood with me. And that's a very English mentality that some teams don't have. Like, I don't think right now, weirdly, Spurs doesn't have it, even though they have a lot of English players. There's no one, Romero maybe. Uh, Carrie Kane doesn't have it. He's much too kind and gentle. Eric Dyer has had it, but now he seems to have lost it. <laughs> but it is a thing, and I wish Mike was still on the show to discuss it. But anyway, Englishness, it is a thing that you have to have in order to win. And I think as we go into the next derby, uh, we'll talk about the players for Manchester United that I think have Englishness. Um, so, like I said, we're going on to my team's derby, uh, which did not go well for Manchester City. Um, City <sighs> went into this game, uh, go into Old Trafford, ready to play. You know, they bring their A guns. They bring that when I saw the lineup, I thought, yep, this is the lineup I want to see. Foden, Holland, Mares, De Bruyne, Rodri, Silva, all the hits, Cancelo where he's supposed to play, Ake, Akanji, and Kyle Walker. So I felt good about that. Now, granted, that center back pairing is probably not City's best. City's best center back pairing is Ruben Diaz and Laporte, but neither of them are in the best nick right now. So it's not quite the way we'd want it to be. But the the first half was cagey, but really good from United. Um, the first half saw two different breakaway chances, long diagonal balls from either Erickson or Bruno. I don't even remember which one, where the ball went out wide, um, got to Marcus Rashford, and he, one time on 34, he... he he rounds the keeper, and it's blocked by Kanji. And then another time, uh, Rashford goes one-on-one or late in the second half, and it gets saved by Ederson. Thank God Ederson showed up at this game uh, for it. Um, Holland had a little bit of a shot, and um, Fernandez early, and then Walker took a wild shot. But the first half really wasn't much there. But I think, if I'm honest, United were the better team in the first half. And the same issues that have been plaguing City this year were there again. No shots on target. Uh, everything was blocked. Only four shots. So really not much there. Didn't really threaten United. And I have to say the player that I that stood out to me against Mares was Malasia, the, the left fullback for United, was really good. They were all as a unit fighting as a group. You saw... Luke Shaw again at center back, like he's the greatest center back of all time. Wambasaka was playing right back. So Ten Hag was smart in that he recognized what type of game this was going to be. And he took his squad and used its best assets to defend his goal. So all the back five, Malasia, Fred, Luke Shaw, Varane, Wambasaka, and Casemiro were on it and tight. And then he, the rest of the front four, uh, Rashford, Martial, Erickson, and Fernandez. Their job was to get on a break when a turnover happened and play through City's press, which wasn't great uh, as it normally is. So they had one more defender, essentially, uh, United, and they really stuck it to City. Malasia marked 
uh, Ray Admarez almost out of the game. The two center backs handled Holland. Um, Juan Bissaka handled Foden on his own. And then you had Casemiro and Fred marking uh, De Bruyne and, um, and, and Bernardo Silva. So really not much there for City. One, one thing I noticed that sort of had, threw me off, as you guys know, I watch City all the time, the spaces for City were really weird. It seemed like the attack was off the screen, and Old Trafford's pitch almost looked too big for City to deal with. And they just couldn't create anything. So that's credit to United, very organized, whatever, playing a defensive strategy, and that was normal stuff. Now, second half, um, the one player who was weak for United was Anthony Martial, and Anthony came on for him. City made their changes on the hour with Grealish coming on for Foden, and Foden immediately changed everything. Uh, Sorry, Grealish. Grealish changed how the game was, and for about 15, 10 minutes before the goal happened, City were really popping around, and it felt really good. Everything started moving around. De Bruyne got on a ball. Things started happening, and Grealish gets on at the end of a cross for De Bruyne, who had been having a bad game. But City were up a goal, and for anyone who's a City fan, you know when City has a goal, they're fine, everything's fine. Then for about, after the goal, for about 15, 20 minutes until 78, this game was over. City were popping a ball around. United weren't creating everything. I think I remember saying Rashford's hurt because he had gone down. Nothing that that worked in the first half was working anymore for United. It seemed they were cooked. And then, out of the blue, a ball is played from Wambasaka to Casemiro on to Rashford, who is clearly offside. And I want this to be very clear. He's clearly offside. He runs onto the ball. The city defense is playing like, oh, he's offside. He does not touch the ball. Then Bruno Fernandez comes onto the ball that Rashford has not touched. He intentionally moves out of the way. Bruno strikes it, and there's a goal. Now, that completely changes the game. The game's level. Old Trafford goes bonkers. There's a VAR check. They call it offside. VAR check says, nope, fine. Rashford didn't touch the ball, didn't interfere with play. He fucking interfered with play, okay? Just don't, you fucking United fans. Now I've got myself all fired up. So the place is going bonkers. Then five minutes later, Rashford scores again because Garnacho is at that point come on for... Um, Garnacho came on for Ericsson and provided width on the outside because um, Rashford had moved to the center and they sort of did a different balance where Rashford is the striker, Anthony on the left, and um, everything just started working. And once those two goals went in, City just didn't have anything to come back to. It was really nothing, and I have to give a lot of credit again to United. United went full checking line, especially late in the game. Um, you know, Maguire, McTominay, Lissandro Martinez, they all come in as five minutes of added time and really, you know, do shut down City. But City was not at their best. Lots of crossing, lots of passing, 70% possession, whatever. And we'll do the sort of same thing I just did with um, with the last game. And now we'll talk about Guardiola's uh, thing that he's doing with, with the team. So City, if you don't know this, defend by having the ball, right? We don't have a good defense, but Pep Guardiola, the coach of Manchester City, he believes that the best way to defend is to keep the ball as far away from his defender, from his goal as possible. And that is with keeping the ball and passing it around and passing it around. He's obsessed with control, obsessed with control and pace. He'll slow a game down, sort of like a, a point guard in a basketball game that just dribbles it up, makes a few passes, and then gets the shots away and controls the game and makes sure that he get a shot. But not gonna, he's not going to go on a fast break and whatever. City have in Erling Haaland, the biggest, most important striker, goal leading the goals, leading the golden boot, have probably the most, the best on the break player you could have, frankly. If City played on the great on the break, if he was if Holland was on United, 
he would be scoring as many goals. Now, he is the thing is Holland is scoring goals for City, but in this case, in this game, City never played to Holland's strength because Pep Guardiola was afraid to lose control of the game. Afraid to lose control of the game. And so you have this six foot three Hulk of robot machine destruction, and City have ne- did not play one ball over the back of the United defense, like a long ball, like a, a, a goalkeeper kick or a defender's kick. Just play it. They just never did it. And by then it was too late. And and somehow Pep Guardiola has found a way to neuter the best striker of a de- generation. It's very frustrating. This is not new. Strikers hate playing strikers for Pep Guardiola. Aguero didn't like it. Zlatan didn't like it. Samuel Eto'o didn't like it. Uh, Thierry Henry, to a lesser extent, didn't like it. He got to play out in the left. Being a striker for a Guardiola team sucks because you just have to run and you never get the ball because everything is about control, 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 control. What's fun is to be a midfielder. I think that Guardiola, um, his favorite moments are when he has 10 midfielders on the pitch. He'd rather play without a striker. I'm convinced of this. Even though he has Holland and he's happy to have him and all this shit, it has disrupted some of the flow of City. And another thing that has disrupted the flow of City, and I give credit to Stephen McInerney, uh, esteemed company, and his channel, esteemed company. He's a pretty famous YouTuber in the UK. Covers City. Very sweet guy. Very nice guy. He said, hey, where are all the leaders that City has had? They're all gone. So the, a team that had very little personality in and of itself has even less now. And it's very reliant on Pep Guardiola pushing the team. So Zinchenko, who I talked about, went to Arsenal, and Gabriel Jesus, and Raheem Sterling, and Fernandinho. All these players who've left City were personalities. And at the level that City's at, dropping a little bit. It's not saying that, woe is, woe is City, blah, blah, blah. It's just that... It's hard to go again when you've lost personalities and characters who were part of the fabric of the club, and it's again more on Pep. And and um, it looked like Gundogan, who's one of the captains of the team, said as much after the Southampton game. He said, we're missing something. And as a fan who's looking at City from the side, City is missing something. Something is off with this team. Uh, it's great. We're in second place. Holland scoring goals. But something's wrong. Uh, I can't place it. It's a little bit too much control. City could go on and win 12 in a row and all this conversation would be moot, but it is weird. So that's the City side of things. For the United side, Ten Hag, you've got yourself a fucking coach. It makes such a huge difference. I was making a joke in our uh, WhatsApp chat that you can go and find when you subscribe, when you go to Facebook and sign up for the Squeaky Bum Time group. Uh, if you need, if you want to, let me know, and I'll send you the WhatsApp group. We have a great bunch of 10 or 15, 20 people who chat all the time about every single game, so you can join that. But what I was saying was, is just like, all I was all vibes. He was like, you're Man United, go out and play. And the players would come and say, uh, they're flooding the midfield with overlapping fullbacks, and we're getting overrun. What do we do? And he's like, did you know I scored a goal in the Champions League final? And they're like, Gaffa, what do we do? What is the plan? And he's like, you know, I come from Norway. <laughs> so now with Ten Hag, we, there's an actual plan. He's thought of everything. He wants to win. He has a plan. They're organized. They fight. They don't give up. They know where the ball's going to go, when they're going to get it, and where's the player going to be. Uh, it's an amazing change for United, and they are in a title race now. And I can't believe it, but hey, good for them. Football's better. This is a great league right now, and we are, you know, lucky to be in this moment. Um, and we're going to go and check in on some of our other friends who were supposed to be in this title race, but are a little less now. And that's for the majority of my Facebook group, uh, our friends from the other side of Mersey, uh, Liverpool Football Club, who went down to Brighton and got their fucking doors blown off them. Um, I knew this would happen. I had a parlay bet with Fulham against Chelsea and Brighton at home versus Liverpool. I knew that the midfield of Brighton 
and their pace and power, and Matomo would terrorize them. And that's exactly what fucking happened. Uh, Liverpool did not show up to this game. A uh, little early pressure for Salah, um, but that was all that Liverpool did in this game. All they did. There was a really, in a, a, a sign of more to come, uh, Sully March scored a goal that was ruled off. Sorry. Sally March drew a penalty that was ruled offside. And you were like, whoa, penalty. Uh, Liverpool's in trouble. It got chalked off. No problem. But then the passing, McAllister to Lalana to Matomo, onto Marsh. After Matip got freaking pressed by Ferguson, a young new striker for Brighton. They got a new striker. It's exciting. My side piece team. Uh, for the friends who don't know this, I secretly, not secretly, I love Brighton. It's my side piece team. If I hadn't declared for City, I would be a Brighton fan. And I loved Graham Potter when he was there. And now I'm in love with uh, Deserby. And they just got destroyed. There was never a moment that Liverpool were in this game. There was never a moment where they were going to come back. There was never a moment where they had any chance in this game. Gakbo had one little shot. It was his first start for, for Liverpool from a classic Trent Alexander-Arnold cross where he put it into him from that three-quarter side. But uh, uh, Lope, uh, Rod, uh, the goalkeeper for Brighton was there, Rodriguez. I can't remember his name. Anyway, and then to the coup de grace. <laughs> On this day of derbies where a former Arsenal, former Manchester United striker, the venerable 35-year-old Danny Welbeck, on a throw-in, gets a flicked header. He pops it over the defender and volleys it with his right foot to score the third goal for Brighton. I'm like, when you're getting done by Danny Welbeck, Liverpool, you are fucked. This team is fucked. Fucked. (laughs) Now, of course, the talent's there. They spent a lot up front. They just need a new midfield. They cannot play Fabinho, Thiago, and Henderson together, ever. It's over. The two of the three of them, they can... they. They cannot play two of those three at the same time. It has to be one, one, one. They they just can't. They can't defend. They can't run. They get passed by. I watched it. Caicedo looked like fucking Zidane in the middle there. And he's, you know, one of these players who's who's available and moving along. It was just incredible. Um, I was so happy. I put $20 down. I won $250. It was the best parlay in history. And Liverpool... Losing made my day after the after losing the derby to United. I just felt so much better. I was like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Liverpool are terrible. If Arsenal win the league, it's okay. As long as Liverpool collapse and suck. I do have to say, um, for Liverpool, you are in trouble. You need this sale to come through sooner because I think the FSG model who the t- the owners are John Henry who own the Red Sox. Ask a Red Sox fan what they are up to. They get the old venerable stadium, they repair it, they do all their sabermetric analytics fun stuff, they find a great manager, then they win their World Series, then they win a couple things, and then once they've won a few times and they've raised the value of the team, then they start cutting. They literally did this with the Red Sox. It's literally the same model that's going to happen to Liverpool. And so they're going to sell. They're going to leave you with the bag of this team that's decaying and falling apart. It's going to happen. So get ready to say FSG out. I would not, I don't, and the other thing that I noticed that was pretty amazing is Klopp's not even mad anymore. He literally said, this is the worst performance by any team I've ever managed. He's resigned to the fact that his team's not good enough. He's just kind of like, it's over for me. It's over for this group. I've got to rebuild. I've got to reload. I'm not mad at their effort. They simply can't do what I'm asking them to do. So it's different, right? It's like it's not that they can't that they that it's in them to get to the levels that he wants them to be. It's gone. They don't have the levels anymore. They can't do what they want them to do. It's over. So we go from there. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Deserbi, who comes from Sassuolo, young Italian manager took over from my beloved Graham Potter and has that team grooved, moving, and now scoring goals. Two from Sully March. Um, 
and one from Welbeck. Just beautiful stuff. Really good goals. You want to watch a team, you're new to this, pick Brighton. Brighton is fun. And speaking of fun, in the derby of uh, unexpected teams doing great, Newcastle versus Fulham. A fun little game. A fun little game that was enjoyable um, for both sides. Both sides can feel good about the result. The only real heavy-duty talking point about this one was um, Fulham had a chance to go ahead after early chances and Shar hitting the bar. Fabian Shar is just the weirdest player. He's a defender who takes free kicks. and can, He's like um, not a great defender, but he has foot skills. So he takes their free kicks and shoots from far. Really amazing striker that I remember. He was just there. Another one that Eddie Howe put together. But uh, De Cordova Reed gets a penalty. There's a VAR check as usual. But Mitrovic makes the penalty, but he taps it first. And there's an obscure rule on penalties that you cannot hit. You cannot double hit it. So you can't take a tap and then hit it. Uh, I'm sure it's so that someone doesn't move the ball and then hit it um, because that would be a cheat. So it did have this weird thing where it's not a retake. It is a free kick and... You know, Fulham lose a chance to score a goal. Uh, and then um, late in the game, on a lofted cross by Longstaff to the back post, Callum Wilson, a little bit of luck, bangs off a defender. And then Alexander Isak, a player uh, we all loved in the Euros, who got hurt early, was showed some promise, but then uh, puts it in and uh, Fulham win. The big thing for this one is Bruno Gamarish. They all are... The best player on Newcastle got hurt. He was crying when he came off. Maybe it's just pain. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But again, the story for Newcastle is what a defensive unit they are. They are the best defense in the league, and it's not close. Um, it's Burn, Botman, Chair, and Trippier with Gamarish ahead of them. Uh, oh, Longstaff is really the sitter. He kind of drops deep and is probably more part of the defense. And then Nick Pope is there. They just don't give up anything. They shut everything down. Uh, they run hard up front. They press as a unit. Just an incredible group. Uh, and then on the other side, Fulham played well as well. I really have always loved Harrison Reed. I talk about Jao Paulina every freaking week that I can. Pereira, Willian, Reed, uh, Tim Ream, the American. You know, a lot of good players between these two teams. And these two teams can feel really good about where they are. Um, getting Losing 1-0 when you had a chance to draw for uh, Fulham is a good result. They're sitting in six still. They're solid. They're really solid. And I really like both these teams. Again, uh, teams to go out and watch and enjoy. Um, and we're going to find out a little bit more about Newcastle if Gamarish is out for a while. They do have players in reserve. They've got Alan St. Maximin. They've got to work uh, Alexander Isak in. You know, do they need do they need another midfielder to try and figure things out? Maybe, but, you know, they'll try and figure it out. I really like this team. Very, very, very enjoyable stuff from them. And we move on to our friends in Chelsea. <sighs> That's what you got to do for Chelsea right now. Got to breathe. Um, they get through Crystal Palace on just amazing work um, by, by Thiago Silva, who just carried this team and made sure they wouldn't lose. 38-year-old defender just would not let his team lose. Just a real moment of leadership, a real moment of any ball that looked like danger Anything that came his way, he completely got a hold of it, completely stopped it, headed it away, was in the right position, just made sure that there was no way Chelsea was going to lose because of anything he did. <laughs> he was really uh, on top of this one, by far the best player. Now, that's not good for Chelsea. He's 38 years old. Your best defender should not be 38 years old. It's simply a bad, bad look for them. Um, but I do want to go through this a little bit more. Chelsea, not great. Uh, lots of, first of all, a lot of honoring of uh, uh, Gianluca Vialli. Lots of TIFOs, lots of banners. Very cool from Chelsea. It was the first home game since... Um, 
since his passing. So I talked about him last week. Uh, really sad, very much a legend, very much people should learn about some of these players. There's a lot of information out there. Gianluca Vialli, if you're a new Chelsea fan, go find out about him. He's really, really cool, sweet guy, great player, and a leader. He was a player coach at Chelsea, won them their first titles, and is the catalyst for modern Chelsea. Um, so check that out. Early in the game, Kepa's keeping Kepa's keeping Chelsea in this like he has done. Any of the wins they have is because of Kel, of, of Kepa. Massive one on Elise, massive one on on Schlupp. But to be fair, Thiago had one saved by Giaita by uh, for Crystal Palace. But Crystal Palace, you know, they they're still playing well, but they are missing some oomph. I think the Gallagher loss is starting to come through. They don't have that energy in the midfield to carry them through. Uh, and Zaha couldn't put his mark on the game. Uh, the goal came from your favorite uh, bad striker, Kai Havertz. Amazing cross from Ziyech, who somehow is on the other side of the field, but he does put it in. Havertz was not good in this game. He missed two other headers, so just don't give him any uh, any quarter. He is still bad, and Chelsea still have tons and tons and tons of work to do on this team. Luis Hall is still playing. You saw a first start for um, Benoit Badashil, new player. Uh, we still saw Chalaba at left back. It's still not Chikamequa is still in. So a lot of young players that Potter is trying to work in through the injuries that um, that 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 Chelsea are going through, and it's still not really working. But they get a win. Potter gets a reprieve. Uh, they do bring on um, Murdoch. They gazump Arsenal in their chase of this uh, uh, Ukra- young Ukrainian um, winger attacker, which they have enough of. Frankly, it's really frustrating that Chelsea can't identify what they need when everyone knows what they need. They need a creative midfielder. <laughs> they don't have one. They have all these pacey, running, attacking players and try and figure those out. Uh, I do want to give another shout-out to Decore for um, Crystal Palace, who takes a thunderbolt of a shot that Kepa saves. And Palace will probably feel hard done. They didn't get a draw out of this game. Um, and Palace will get their points another time. They are sputtering a little bit. Like I said, I really love Palace, but they are not quite where they need to be at this time and probably need a couple more wins before they feel good about where they are in the season. It's it's They don't want to drift. You want to have some progress, and I'm worried for Crystal Palace. It's a little bit stale for them. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, where Chelsea are culturally. And I did talk about it a couple of days ago, but they're still not quite where they want to be. Um, Putin destroyed Ukraine and he has destroyed Chelsea. Um, Chelsea signing a Ukrainian is interesting. Uh, Murdoch will be another player. He'll be there with, with um, Jao Felix. So Chelsea have spent almost half a billion dollars on players and really don't have much to show for it yet. Um, a lot of money on players. Not sure if they're the right players. I think they have to acknowledge that they're in a moment of resetting, a moment of change. Everything has changed. Ownership, the back office, the coach, the players. They just need to accept where they are and kind of say, okay, Grand Potter's our coach. We're trusting his process and give him a full year Uh under the, under the, in charge before they start firing and calling for his head. Just accept it, you know. Take your medicine. Your owner was a bad guy. Roman Abramovich, a friend of Putin, forced to sell. The team went through that. Now you're sort of starting from zero. Uh, Boley seems to be applying American ideas on on contracts. Like uh, Merdrick got an eight and a half year contract which is unheard of in British football. Three years, five years, max. But American sports, we do this. We give people 10-year contracts. In baseball, you see 13-year contracts. And that's odd. But I have a feeling Bowley is looking for this con- the American concept of cost certainty, knowing where his team is, understanding the revenue, understanding how much his payroll is going to cost, and really letting Potter have a reign of what his guys are, let the old boys go. Let everyone who's goes Potter never won anything. Let that group go and let Chelsea build again and come back up and you know have a season with no Europe 
and just deal. Uh, I believe in Potter. Again, this is my Brighton ways coming through. I think he'll he'll do a great job, but you know it is difficult to turn a team around and bring them to where they want to go. So there is that. So we've only really got ten minutes to go, and I want to call this section the Sword of Daishicles. Who? What is the Sword of Daishicles? Sean Daish is uh, was the manager of Burnley for I think 12, 10 seasons. And he's out there. He's a manager who's out there. And any team that is falling apart or might go down, Sean Dyche is your man to come save your team. So he is the sword of Dyshecles. He's sitting above your club, ready to pounce when your team decides that it needs to get rid of its manager and put a drill sergeant in. And uh, that'll take us to um, Everton versus Southampton. More woe for Everton. Um, they lose after going ahead from Onana on a really good header. I'm not going to go too much into this game, but this was a James Ward-Prowse game. Um, you know, James Ward-Prowse is just such a good player. He's been in a league now for almost over 10 years. He's just almost 10 years. Um, you know, came into the side at 16, 17 years old. And Nathan Jones now has Southampton playing well. They won in a cup. They beat City. Now they go away, they get a win versus Everton, and Fat Frank Lampard is just cooked. Uh, I don't see how he gets out of this. Uh, he's not a good coach. How, how much How much proof do we need? He's another one. He's like Ole, maybe a little bit better. He lives on vibes. You can't win on vibes. You've got to have a plan. You've got to be better. Everton are not this bad. And unless they change the coach, they're going to go down. And they cannot go down. I do want to call out um, Anthony Gordon for giving a foul on the outside of the box in the 78th minute, right where James Ward-Prowse is going to score a goal. When James Ward-Prowse got over that free kick, I was like, he's scoring this goal. He just does it. He's now, I think, one or two goals away from David Beckham's free kick record in the Premier League. Pretty good for a guy playing for Southampton who never gets linked to other teams. Great little player. Uh, Would love to see him on other teams one day, one day. And now for our great friend, Mr. Christian, we go to um, Nottingham Forest taking on Leicester. And my, the mighty tricky trees have put the hurt on Leicester City, who cannot win without James Madison on their team. They blow it again. Uh, my understanding is this is a derby. I guess. I've never seen it be too derby-ish. I know of um, Forrest's Derby was against, is it Ipswich? Or the other one? Derby? No, their Derby is against Derby. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. These are things you can look up. These are things that are interesting about the football. Uh, early in the game, Barnes missed two sitters. And I mean two that Leicester really could have been up in this game. But then our man Morgan Gibbs-White is just the player. He is him. As the kids say in basketball, I don't know why they say it. It sounds fucking ridiculous. But he's in on everything that happened. Him to Brendan Johnson, twice really good goals on the break. And my boy, the ugliest manager in all of sports, Steve Cooper, has got this team moving. Go on, Forrest. So Forrest now, not really not really dealing with the sort of Dijakles. Uh Forrest smartly, when they were in trouble, did give an extension to Cooper. He's in good shape. But the sword of Dyshecles does swing and now swings over Leicester City and Brendan Rodgers. Brendan Rodgers. We go to Brent, Brentford versus Bournemouth. There's only one sword for this game, and it's over Bournemouth. Um, you know, uh, Johnson did um, – sorry, I want to make his name. Gary O'Neill did get the kiss of death saying, oh, we got the contract. But Ivan Tony came in, bossed this game pretty, pretty hard. Um, and really just pushed pushed a team forward uh, with his nous and creativity. He draws a penalty by hooking the arm of the defender and drags him into him and then throws himself to the ground, dragging he and a defender to the ground, drawing the penalty. O'Neal is livid. I mean, pissed as all hell, but he did get the penalty and then a late goal by Mateus Jensen. Of course, Brentford on the break. Nice cutback across the whole 18-yard box, and Jensen goes on, side foots at home. But, you know, Raya did have a save against Dembele. 
Um, and Billing had a nice shot as well in the game. But nothing, let me get his name right. Shiriki Dembele uh, came on it in the 66th minute. Did have a decent shot. But not much here for Bournemouth. And they are slipping. Their numbers have said they would slip. And they are slipping. Shocking that, really. Uh, I don't think they'll stay up. They're not good enough unless they bring in lots and lots and lots of players. Uh, we move on to our friends from Friday night, Villa versus Leeds. Um, where's the, who's the sword over? The sword of Damocles is over Leeds. Uh, I don't think they'll go for Dyche. Dyche is not uh, a Leeds manager. And Jesse Marsh is well-loved. And Leeds were really good in this game. Again, Leeds has these performances that are so good that they make you believe that they've won and when you watch them, but they've actually lost. <laughs> it's fucking shocking. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, uh, Emmy Martinez with incredible saves, first against Rodrigo and then another one um, against, uh, who's the other one? Against Harrison. Just an unreal save. They give up a goal from a corner, typical freaking um typical freaking leads kamara to bailey kamara really good running through the midfield bailey with a good finish so villa were up early and doing well get another goal after var offside for buendia a goal gets pulled back yonto another great player we watch leads they're so fun but why do they lose god damn it uh and banford gets his first goal in a year the best middle class striker in all of football uh sort of Damocles over Leads now West Ham versus Wolves definitely sort of Damocles time uh, for our friend David Moyes who is in trouble. Uh, Podent scores the goal on a deflection. Really not a lot to walk away from on this one. Again, West Ham just not creating anything. Uh, I had been sure that this team was going to be fine, but they just can't seem to get themselves together, just not enough there for them to put stuff together. Uh, they're just not creating anything. They're not getting their good players on the ball. Uh, Bowen can't seem to connect with Mikel Antonio. Fornals isn't doing anything. Lucas Paqueta is still back there. I think the weak link right now is Thomas Socek, who was so good as a partnership with Rice. They're just not getting the shots off that they need to score. They're still as, a, as they like to say, profligate in front of goal. Lots of opportunities, no one to finish them, uh, and Wolves, you know, just better. Um, Lopetegui has made a huge difference there. I don't think they'll go down now. Um, so sort of Damocles over West Ham and David Moyes, over Leeds and Jesse Marshall, which I don't think, over Bournemouth and Gary O'Neill, which I don't think either, and then over Leicester and um, our friend, Mr. Brendan Rodgers, and way over Southampton, even though they, oh, uh, over Everton and um, uh, and um, Frank Lampard. Now, I have another name that we could go to, and it's um, Mr. Ralph Hassenhudel, the sort of Hassenhudel, could also swing on some of these teams. He's a really good manager, who I haven't heard linked to anyone. Uh, I have heard Benitez linked to West Ham, which I think would be awful. Um, but I would love to see Hassenhudel at West Ham. I think Hassenhudel is a great coach, attacking, understands the, the Premier League, had Southampton really punching above their weight for longer than they deserved to. Now, let us go into a quick review of what's coming up next because we do have a handful of midweek fixtures that we probably should look into. Um, just writing down when I said this stuff so that I can put it into the notes later on <laughs> as we get near the hour mark. Uh, we have midweek games. We never stop having midweek games. So we've got Palace versus United on Wednesday, Manchester City versus Tottenham on Thursday. And we'll do the show and cover those two games. Those are huge, huge, huge games. Massive, massive games that we've got to cover. But I do want to wrap the show here make sure i didn't miss anything i told you who i was i told you what happened and i told you what we were gonna do okay that 
was the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast with the Rock 14s. We are the football wing of the Chomp Sports Channel and presented exclusively by the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Tuesdays and Fridays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a show. And if you're listening on Apple or any other of your podcast stations, please rate and review the show. It makes a huge difference. Thank you.